Hey, FAC family, I hope you're doing well. Uh, I have been so encouraged this past week as I've heard so many different stories about how our church is keeping in touch and connecting with each other in very creative ways. I just want to remind everyone that as we ride out this thing together, that uh, we as a staff are, are still here and we are more than welcome to help in whatever ways we possibly can. And so don't, don't hesitate to call. Uh, don't hesitate to email. We would love to see you, uh, hear from you. Uh, I'm praying for you guys daily. And, um, while we're going to have to conduct our services digitally like this for some time, um, it's going to make our reuniting all the more sweet. This past week, uh, I was thinking about our time apart from each other, and it actually reminds me of what Paul wrote to the church uh, in uh, Thessalonica. And so before we begin our, our time, I want to read this to you real quick. It comes from 1 Thessalonians two seventeen through 20. Uh, Paul writes, But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Uh, Under the circumstances, Paul was torn away from this church in Thessalonica that he actually planted. We're going to get to study about that when we get to Acts 17. And Paul mentions that while they're separated in person, they're still connected in heart. And uh, Paul longs for the day that they would be reunited because they bring him so much joy and, and they are his glory. He, he's boasting in the fact that there was so much fruit in the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul is just eagerly awaiting uh, to, to be reunited with this church in Thessalonica. Uh, I share Paul's sentiment with you guys, each of you uh, here watching this or listening to this from home. As we've been separated physically under our current circumstances, uh, I have to believe that we're not separated in heart. And just as Paul was eager, I too am eager to see you face to face again. If anything, this time apart has shown me how important gathering together in the context of the local church really is and how valuable that is. And so we're going to enter into a time of worship together. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verses 10 through 13. And then we're going to praise God just like we would on a Sunday morning. We're going to praise Him uh, through song. We're going to worship Him through the preaching of God's Word. We're going to worship Him uh, through a time of offering. And we're going to encourage you to participate in all of these uh, as you watch this from the comfort of your home. I know it's awkward to uh, kind of be singing in your living room with the worship band, but I promise you won't regret it as you participate uh, in our service here today. And so let me read Isaiah 42, 10 through 13, and we'll begin. It says this, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. 
the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Would you pray with me as we begin our time in worship? Heavenly Father, I uh, lift up our time to you, uh, Lord, and, and that this moment would be redeemed. Lord, we recognize that while we can't gather together in person to worship you, Father, we, we know from your word that your church is not confined by walls. And so let the church today bring praise to your name and bring glory to your name. We praise you, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Would you sing with us as we worship together? Well, hello, church. We are excited that you are here with us to, to worship and lift our voices up to the Lord. So would you join with us as we sing to our Heavenly Father who has gathered us here together? Here we go. Sing with me. No height. No height or death can separate. You stand fast in love who can escape Your faithfulness and endless So full of grace and mercy We sing God is so
solid gold Like a vow that is tested Like a covenant of old And your love is enduring Through the winter rain And beyond the horizon Of mercy for today yourself to me and it's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be
pray with me? See, Father God, we thank you for this time that we've had to gather as a church family, whether that's uh, far apart, if it's in a building, if it's in a family room, a living room, maybe even a car. Um, Lord, we just praise you. We thank you for this time that we've had to lift up our voices to you in the struggle that we're going through right now throughout the world, Lord. We thank you that we can give you the highest praise that you deserve. And Lord, what we have to bring to you is small, but it's what we have. Lord, would you be glorified in it? Would you be praised? And would it be pleasing to your ear? Lord, we thank you. We love you. And would this song be our anthem ever be on our lips, Lord? Would we give you the highest praise? In your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Um, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're actually going to be traveling all the way through verse uh, 53 today. Uh, now, it's typically our pattern to read the whole passage on the front end, uh, but I'd like to switch it up and read it as we go uh, because it's such a long passage. We're going to kind of handle this in uh, four different chunks uh, today. And so before we begin, let's just pause for a quick word of prayer and then we'll, and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, we lift up our time to you. I pray, Father, as we now worship you through the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate these words that you inspired so many years ago. We're thankful for your word, and we pray, Father, that it would be edifying to us today. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. A few years back, uh, Viola Davis won the uh, Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in her role in the movie Fences. Uh, most of these acceptance speeches, in my opinion, that I hear at the Oscars are forgettable, uh, but for whatever reason, Davis's had quite the impression on me those many years ago. Uh, as she clenched onto her Oscar, she stepped up to the microphone, and the first thing that she said was that there's one place that all the people with the greatest potential are gathered. One place, and that's the graveyard. People ask me all the time, what kind of stories do you want to tell, Viola? And I say, exhume those bodies. Exhume those stories the stories of the people who dreamed big and never saw those dreams to fruition. There is a vast treasure to be found from the voices of the past. They call to us. They teach lessons. And they show us our place in the grand scheme of all things. Back over a year ago when we were filming a, um, uh, uh, promotional video for our 2020 vision giving campaign, I had the opportunity to sit down, uh, and interview one of our church members, uh, Phoebe Herschelman, who to my knowledge is the, has attended First Alliance Church longer than anybody else. She has been attending this church for over 80 years. And 
um, she was telling me stories. Uh, as she was telling me stories of her childhood at FAC, I was just getting chills and goosebumps up my arms. Uh, it was such a privilege for me to uh, be able to hear those stories from days gone by. And I specifically remember coming out of, of that interview feeling humbled and recognizing my place, that I am just a speck in the history, the long history of First Alliance Church. Uh, church, we stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants who have come before us. And then when I consider how I am just an iota in the history of FAC, it gives me even more of an appreciation for God's plan over the course of all human history. We must remember that we are a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow, and that we are microscopic in comparison to the history of man. And so it would be wise of us to listen to the voices of the past and see how God has orchestrated his master plan over the course of human history. This is what Stephen does in Acts chapter 7. If you watched the sermon from last week, we read about Stephen, who is a follower of Jesus, an ordinary disciple, not one of the apostles. Uh, and Stephen went out in public and began preaching. And essentially, in response, a Jewish mob formed and apprehended him for his blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They essentially charged him with teaching against the Jewish law and teaching against the temple. In the Jewish context, there wouldn't be more harsh charges. This is about as criminal as you can get uh, in that context. And now they want Stephen to answer for his crimes in front of the high priest and in front of the council. In this very first verse of our passage. In chapter 7, verse 1, if you want to look at it, the high priest said, are these things so? He turns to Stephen and asks him if these things are so. He's asking Stephen to account for his teaching. And this ends up launching us into a speech from Stephen. And it happens to be the longest speech found in Acts. And before we get into it, there's a few things that I want to touch base on. Uh, first, please understand that this chapter is just a gold mine of theology. The more you dig, the more gold you are going to find. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, the, the time to dig in this passage as deeply as we could because, you know, people generally frown on four-hour sermons. Um, we could develop an entire four- or five-week series just on chapter 7, but instead, we're going to take a very broad look at it. We're going we're gonna to take a broad 30,000-foot look at this portion of Scripture. And so it's ho my hope for today and really every Sunday, for that matter, that we dig enough that you'll get a, a glimpse at, at just enough gold that 
tantalizes and provokes you at home uh, to, to go home and to do some digging on your own uh, and to really mine the depths of this treasure trove of Scripture uh, on your own time in, in personal study. And you'll find how vital personal study is to your walk in Christ. Another note before we begin, uh, specifically looking at the text. This entire speech, all the way up to verse 50, is entirely from Scripture, which just happens to also be history. Uh, when, when challenged and asked to give a defense, Stephen is using the Word of God as his defense. He's using stories from the Old Testament. Almost for Stephen to say, I don't need to speak for myself. I'm going to open up God's word and let God's word speak for me. I don't need to defend myself. I'm going to let God's word uh, defend me on my behalf. I'm just going to open up the word. And I'm going to let the word of God do the work of God. If you were to turn to Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is alive and active. And it's like a double-edged sword that penetrates the hearts of men. Stephen in this chapter is wielding this sword. And we'll find that he just, he has this excellent handle on God's word. He, he has such a deep understanding of it. And he is able to contextual, contextualize it. He's able to bring the living word to light, to expose the truths of the scripture, and apply it to his current situation. It's one thing to be able to pick up a sword. And it's completely another thing altogether to know how to use it. Stephen picks up this sword, and boy, does he know how to use it. And the neat thing about Scripture, which I've mentioned already, is that it's all based in history. It's voices from the past. And the reason this is so significant is because our faith as believers is not based on subjective teaching. But instead, it's based on objective history. It's based on events that actually happened and can be proven. They're facts. It's rooted in, in events. We listen to what Jesus taught and we follow what Jesus teaches because of what Jesus did. Because of history that took place. Because of an event that took place. And so in Acts 7, we will read a concise history of Israel and a history of their relationship with God in Stephen's speech. And it's all based uh, on real people that really existed. You can go back to the Old Testament and read all about these, uh, the, these men and these stories that Stephen speaks of. There's a consistency between the Old Testament and between Stephen's speech. And up until verse 51... There's nothing that these Jewish oppressors can deny. All of Stephen's speech is rooted in Scripture. All of it's rooted in history. And the council would have to agree that, yes, we affirm that those things did happen. Uh, through his retelling of Israel's history and his speech, 
what we're going to find is Stephen addresses kind of these major tenets of the, the Jewish faith. And then in these in the final verses, uh, Stephen delivers this bold gut punch of an accusation against these Jewish leaders. And so let's start with the, with this first tenet that, that Stephen addresses, this first pillar of the Jewish faith. Starting in verse 2, we're going to read uh, all the way through verse 34. It says this. This is Stephen speaking. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds." When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." I know that's a lot to take in, um, but really what's pulled from these the first several verses, that first tenet, that first pillar that Stephen addresses is that of the land, specifically the promised land. We read about uh, how God made a promise to Abraham, who's the father of all Israelites, and, and that God would give Abraham's family a, a, a land. Then Stephen recounts, he continues on and recounts the story of Joseph, who winds up in Egypt. And in Egypt, the Israelites grow into a great nation of people who are oppressed by the Egyptians. And then God sends Moses as the representative used to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. Uh, from there, as Stephen continues, and as we'll read later, or if you're reading through the Old T- Testament, um, what you, you have is this story about a, a relationship between God and the people of Israel, the, the Israelites. And now, eventually, they get into the Promised Land, and they have this land, and eventually they become officially established as a kingdom. The first section of Stephen's speech, as we read further on a little bit later, affirms Israel as this established nation. And you can connect the dots to say that just as any other king ruling over any other kingdom has jurisdiction in a specific region. He he has a specific rule over a specific land. Naturally, there are always boundaries to a a kingly rule. In governance, right? Authority can only dictate uh, what what happens within their borders, right? Our our governor of Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf, um, ordered a statewide shutdown of non-life essential businesses today, and uh, he has the authority to do that. But but he doesn't have the authority uh, to do that in Ohio. He doesn't have the authority to do that in New York. No, he only has jurisdiction in Pennsylvania and everything that happens within the borders of Pennsylvania. But as Stephen points out in this passage... God's activity, his jurisdiction, if you'll notice, is not limited to a particular land. Stephen is careful with the details. In verse 2, he says that God, uh, the God of glory uh, appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, not the promised land. In verse 9, Joseph is sold into Egypt. 
But God was with him. Fast forward to Moses' time in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in verse 30. And there God is once again speaking to Moses in the desert. In verse 32, God introduces himself to Moses and says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. None of those men ever had possession of the promised land. God's revelation of himself is is not confined to a specific land. Stephen explains that we have to be careful with limiting God's activity or jurisdiction to a specific land because God rules a borderless kingdom. There are no boundaries to God's activity and holiness. All of his creation is his jurisdiction. This is the first point that Stephen makes, the first pillar. The, the next pillar, the next staple that, Jesus, that Stephen tackles is God's law as it relates to Moses. Take a look at verses 35 through 43 with me as we continue in Stephen's speech. Stephen says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey them, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. In this portion of Stephen's speech, he identifies Moses as the man that God used as ruler and redeemer of of Israel uh, when they were in bondage in Egypt. And in verse 38 specifically, Moses is identified as the one that uh, who received living oracles or living words, uh, teachings from God that would be given to the people of Israel. This is the law. These oracles, these teachings that Moses received would end up becoming the law. And this is the law that Stephen is accused of blaspheming. 
Remember, one of the charges was, Stephen, you speak against Moses. And this is what he's, what, uh, what Stephen's referring to. He's beginning to answer to this charge. And he, he tells the history of the law and the significance that Moses plays in, in the law. And Stephen even affirms the law's divine authority. And so Stephen's talking to these Jewish leaders and say, and saying, you think I'm blaspheming? You think I'm speaking against the law? Let's just take a trip down memory lane, shall we? And then from verses 39 to 43, Stephen says, Hey, do you remember that our, our ancestors, our very own ancestors rejected that law, right? I, I'm not the one in rebellion to God's law. Our ancestors were. I am honoring the law as divine and honoring it as the living word from God that is worthy to be followed. But when God delivered our ancestors from Egypt, they turned to idolatry. They didn't rejoice in God's work. They rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And they built idols and offered sacrifices to other gods. And when God saw this, he turned from them and gave them over to their idolatry. You see, we have a God that is jealous for our worship of him. But we also have a God that will turn us over to our idolatry. God will let us reject him if that's what we truly want. And God will let us live in the consequences of rejecting him. God leaves the Israelites to themselves. He lets them go their own way. And they take this self-destructive course. When left to their own vices, they end up being exiled out of the promised land into a foreign nation. Stephen drives home the point when he quotes the prophet Amos in verses 42 and 43. Amos was a prophet that actually lived several centuries after Moses. And what a lot of commentators think that Stephen is doing by including this um, prophetic message from Amos, it can actually be found in uh, Amos 5, 25 through 27. What Stephen's doing is that he, he's indicating that this act of rebellion against God's living word, against his law, was not a one-time occurrence. It's not like they were delivered out of Egypt, uh, fell into rebellion, and then repented and never did it again. No, this was a pattern through Israelite history. This was a recurring problem from generation to generation. Stephen wants us to know that God's law uh, given through Moses is good and that it's living, and that it's holy, and that it's divine. But from the second that it was given, it has always come up against a rebellious people. This is the second point that Stephen drives home. And finally, a third point, or a third tenet that Stephen addresses is that of the temple. We see that in verses 44 through 50. Take a look at it with me. It says this. Stephen says, Our, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. 
Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they uh, dispossessed the nations uh, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands, uh, did not my hand make all these things? In verse 44, Stephen mentions the tent of witness. Another name that might be familiar to you is actually the tabernacle. It contained the Ark of the Covenant, um, which is essentially a box that uh, contained ancient holy relics. The Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant for quite some time. And uh, this tent, this tabernacle, was the place where God would meet and commune with the Israelites as they marched into the Promised Land. Fast forward many, many years to a time where Israel's in the promised land. They're established, they are an established nation. And uh, the second king of Israel, King David, decides that he wants to build a more permanent home for God. And so he comes up with this idea for the temple, and the temple is completed by the third king of Israel, Solomon, who's King David's son. Now, this was a nice sentiment and all, and David and Solomon, I believe, had good intentions. It wasn't wrong to build the tabernacle. It wasn't wrong to build the temple. But it should have never been regarded as God's home, literally. The building of the temple, in and of itself, was not sacred, if you were to go back to verse 32 in Acts chapter 7, when, when God is speaking to Moses, if we could backtrack, uh, from the burning bush, uh, God tells Moses, take off the sandals from your feet, from the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now think about that for a second. Uh, Moses is out in the wilderness. He's in the desert. It's an obsolete location. There are no resources, yet the ground is holy. Why? Because that is where God is. The the only reason the temple is holy is because you could experience the presence of God there. But there was nothing special about the building in and of itself. And Stephen wants us to know that just as you can't limit God's jurisdiction, you cannot limit God's holiness and sacredness uh, beyond any um, particular building. Uh, Stephen wants us to know uh, that God's holiness and his presence and his sacredness isn't contained or confined to a specific building. And Stephen makes this argument by quoting another prophet. He quotes Isaiah 66, uh, verse 1. Where Isaiah says, uh, he's speaking, he's writing as God is talking to him, and God calls the earth his footstool. In light of this 
current pandemic, we're, we're scrambling right now because the world, the earth is just out of control. However, there's a popular saying out there that we, we never actually lose control. We just lose the illusion of control. It's easy to realize and understand that we have no real control of what happens in this world and what happens in our life. We never had control, even though we've fooled ourselves to believe that we did. What little control we may have is largely insignificant. However, God, with the earth as his footstool, has control. R.C. Sproul, a famous pastor, theologian, has said that there is not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. God dwarfs the earth as he calls it his footstool. And if God is over all of this, and if he is over all of creation and, and all, all of it is created by his hand, and if the world itself is his footstool, then how can I build anything by my own hands that can contain him? God made all of these things, and so we're reminded that God cannot be contained physically. A human temple cannot contain God. And so for Stephen, this isn't a statement against the temple. Rather, it does place the temple in its proper perspective. And then this causes me to wonder, how many times have I tried to draw finite boundaries around our infinite God? How many times have I tried to put God in a box mentally? Maybe not physically, but in my mind. No, God tells us in his word, I am who I say I am. I get to define who I am. You don't draw boundaries around me. I tell you who I am. And beyond that, what I have revealed to you through my word, your finite minds can't even fully comprehend. There is so much more to know of God that we can't even fathom because the earth is his footstool. And the beauty of this is that we don't need a temple to worship an infinite God. We don't need a specific location to worship God. We have everything necessary for true and proper worship. This is incredibly relevant for us today. Uh, as an FAC family, we worship together today while dispersed throughout the city of Erie and beyond. 
Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of gathering together as a local church. That's incredibly important. But but not for this reason. It's, it's not that we can't worship God and, and that we that we can't experience His presence unless we're all under one roof in, in one place at the same time. No, just as God is not limited, uh, our worship of God is not limited within the walls of a building. Because our entire lives are an act of worship. And so I believe that this time apart for us actually is a test of some sorts that will show us the true nature of First Alliance Church. Because all of a sudden, the obligation that you feel to go to church on a Sunday, to go to a physical location, that obligation is lifted right now because no one's going to church on Sundays. Nobody is going to a physical building to to worship God on Sundays right now. And so strip away the physical interaction. Strip away the immersive, the immersive singing experience. Strip away the events. Strip away the programs. And what are we left with? We are left with the Word of God. And my life lived as an act of worship. So here's the test. Is that enough for you? Take all those things away. And is God and his omnipresence and his word enough for you in your walk with him through this messed up and broken world and life? The reason that we have everything we need to worship God wherever we are, the reason we have access to God wherever we are is because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in you? You are God's temple. In the ancient times, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the physical temple of Jerusalem, a high priest was needed. And regular sacrifices were needed to be in order for the Jewish people to gain access, to have access to God. But then Jesus came along, who's identified as the perfect high priest. And he paid a sacrifice once and for all. And Christ opened the door for a a new way, a way that Stephen has now been illuminated to. The truth was always there in Scripture, uh, but it's finally being revealed in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, a new covenant where we can approach the uh, throne of God with confidence. We don't need the temple anymore because you are the temple of God if you believe and follow Jesus. We don't need a high priest to intervene for us before because Jesus was the high priest who served as a mediator and intervened on our behalf. One writer says that God's presence is known and recognized 
and identified through the hearts of men and women that have been marked by the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? Unfortunately, there are many that reject Jesus and his sacrifice, which brings us to the end of Stephen's speech. Uh, Take a look at verses 51 through 53. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. I vividly remember my first day of seventh grade when I walked into my social studies class. And on the whiteboard was written the question that asked, why do we study history? After discussing it at length as middle school students, our teacher explained to us that we study history so that we can learn from the voices of the past. One commentator writes that, in effect, Stephen asks these Jewish leaders, he asks them, do you appreciate your own history enough not to repeat its mistakes? In the last portion of Stephen's speech, he turns the tables on his accusers, and this is where the intensity of the interaction increases as Stephen rebukes his listeners. Stephen is saying, look, you stiff-necked people. I'm not the one teaching against God. I'm not the one preaching against God. You are. You have an uncircumcised heart and an uncircumcised ear. It means that you're acting like pagans. You're not acting like God's people. Both your heart and your ears are unresponsive to God. And just like your ancestors before you, you are rejecting the messenger sent by God. You're not learning from history. You don't care what the voices of the past say. Uh, Historically speaking, the prophets of God, the messengers of God, were consistently rejected. We even see it come through in our passage. In verse 9, Joseph was rejected by the patriarchs. In verse 35, Moses was rejected by the quarreling Israelites. If you consider the major prophets from the Old Testament, the Jewish tradition held that, that Jeremiah was stoned to death, that Isaiah was actually cut in two by King Manasseh. The whole theme of this speech, the big takeaway, is that God has always been pursuing his creation. He has always sent messengers to reveal his word and to reveal his presence, and they have always been rejected. You see, this is a sin issue. As God pursues us, We reject him. And it takes an act of the Holy Spirit to open our ears to his word and open our eyes to his presence. 
Stephen tells his accusers that they are just like those ancestors, but in, in a way they've one-upped their ancestors. Stephen is saying, you took this to a whole nother level because you betrayed and murdered not just a human messenger, but the righteous one from heaven, Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh. You didn't just reject a messenger of God. You rejected God himself. And so the question once again at hand, is do you appreciate your own history enough to not repeat its mistakes? Are you listening to the voices of the past? And the question is the same before us. Do I go on living my life in constant rejection to Jesus like many people before me? Or do I embrace and submit myself to him in all of his limitless glory? Let's pray. Father, I praise you um, for your spirit that moves in our midst and that turns the lights on, Father, because without the act of the Holy Spirit, we, we are blind to your goodness and we are blind to your ways and we are blind to who Jesus is. And so I pray, Father, that there would be someone watching this here today who ha- has rejected God, rejected specifically Jesus their entire life. And for the first time, the Holy Spirit clicks the lights on and they realize that they need to turn to him and not make mistakes of people in the past. I would ask, Father, that we would be drawn to you and that we would love you. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and sing one more song together. All right, we have one last song to share with you this morning, so would you sing with us?
Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that God used this time today to draw you closer to him and to edify you. Uh, typically, when we are with each other on Sunday mornings, uh, we do pass an offering plate during that last song. And um, we look at offering as just another way that we can worship God, as, as we give a portion of what he's so richly blessed us with. And so if you are a part of the FAC family, um, I would love to encourage you to just continue your normal pattern of giving. You can do that online. You can just visit faceerie.org slash giving. Uh, you can also mail a check to us to the uh, church's address. And uh, during this tough time, we don't want to be ignorant to the economical ramifications of this pandemic and the effect that it could have on the FAC family. Um, but if everyone in the church family just continues to give uh, to, according to their normal pattern, we're, we're going to be just fine. And so um, take advantage of that opportunity. I love you guys, and I can't wait to see you again. Uh, let me close out our time with a benediction. This is one of my favorites. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. Uh, and now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless. See you guys later.